are the Partnership for the Arts Radio. Come join us as we explore our worlds of art. Partnership for the Arts Radio is located at Virtual Edge 360 in Port Charlotte, Florida. In part one of her interview series with Stephanie Osborne, who lives in Huntsville, Alabama, we learned about her background in aerospace science, that she worked for NASA with the Space Shuttle Program and the International Space Station. Later, Stephanie would take all that knowledge and experience and begin to write her first novel, Burnout. We also learned that she began writing that novel just before the Columbia disaster in 2003. She talked about that experience and the tragic loss of her dear friend, astronaut Kalpamachala, affectionately known as KC. After the Columbia accident and the loss of her dear friend, she nearly threw that manuscript away, in part because of the similarities of what had happened and what she had written before the accident. But after an extended amount of time, Stephanie, after coaxing from her friends, family, and a mentor, finished the book with a dedication to Casey and all the astronauts who have lost their lives in the pursuit of space. Since that first novel completed in 2009, she has written over 30 books. In part two, we will be discussing that journey about her books and gaining more insight into her research style and the reasons for writing it. Part two of our interview series starts now. Welcome back to Partnership for the Arts Radio Talk Show. I am your host, Dave. We got some great company as we continue our series in the writer's circle with part two of our interview with author and aerospace rocket scientist, Stephanie Osborne. Stephanie, let's move on to your series, your novel series. Some would say the most controversial series that you have written to date, the Sherlock Holmes series. How many books are in that series right now? I've got six so far in the Displaced Detective series. And seven, if you want to count the omnibus, the omnibus collects the first four books in the series, uh, in under one cover. It's only available as an ebook because it's really, really big. <laughs> now, Stephanie, tell us how this idea about the Sherlock Holmes series came about. I read an anthology of Sherlock Holmes science fiction, and Doyle himself. Several of the Holmes stories are basically science fiction. So I had the idea, that's so cool, I could write that. And then I thought, but wouldn't it be really cool if I didn't have to stick to Victorian era science? I could use modern science. And then I thought, well, what if I drag him to the modern day? And so I started, I started researching ways that this could be done. Of course, other people had worked with the concept of alternate realities. But what I did was I said, okay, if we do have alternate universes, this is going on then I can use this particular branch of physics. It's cutting edge, we're still working out the details, but if I do it this way, then I can create a bridge from here to there. I eventually managed to put together a means for inadvertently bringing Sherlock Holmes from an alternate realities Victorian era into modern day Colorado Springs, Colorado. Because he is not the exact version that Conan Doyle recorded Events are slightly different. He was supposed to actually die with Moriarty at the Rocky mm, Correct, yes. The climactic battle fight over the falls was the point at which he transitioned 
If he goes back, he has to die. But if he stays in the modern day, everybody there thinks he's dead and everything's cool. So he decides, well, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm going to stay in the modern day and stay alive. The series departs from that jumping off. That's uh, quite an interesting twist on a Sherlock Holmes. Again, some people find that controversial. You said there are seven books, including the e-book. Where does the rest of it stand now? Well, so far, there are six books in that series, with a couple more in various stages of development. And then, after I'd gotten a few couple of books out in that series, another publisher approached me, and he said, Steph, I'm such a huge fan of this series. I want you to write me a Sherlock Holmes story. And so we sat down and we brainstormed it, and we came up with the Gentleman Aegis series, which is actually a prequel to the Displaced Detective series, in which... The stories will chronicle Holmes as a young man in his original continuum. And so the first book is out. It's called Sherlock Holmes and the Mummy's Curse. And it actually won a Silver Falchion Award. So it's, it's an award-winning book. And uh, I have an immensely good time with it. It's written in Victorian style, in Victorian British English, from cover to cover. Wow complete with archaic spelling and everything. I had I had such fun writing it. It was just so cool. <laughs> Why did you decide to write it in that style? Well, the, the Displaced Detective series actually utilizes three different versions of English as it is. It uses modern American English for the American characters. It uses modern British English for the modern British characters. And it uses Victorian British English for Sherlock Holmes himself. Okay, so keeping it true to form in the style and age with the language, okay. Yeah, I use the, the appropriate spellings and everything. Can you give us an example? So, clue for us is C-L-U-E, but clue for Holmes is C-L-E-W. And, you know, it's it's plow, P-L-O-W versus P-L-O-U-G-H. Right. That right. sort of thing. So, so the American versus the British. Sometimes keeping up, with, keeping it straight can be can be. Difficult. <laughs> I can imagine. But I thought, well, if I'm going to do it there, then I need to do it here. And since all of the characters here are Victorian and British, we're going with that. Right. <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, Stephanie. And by the way, congratulations on that award. Well, yeah, it's it's a really nice mystery award, and I'm very very pleased to have won it. Well, obviously very well deserved, Stephanie. We can all see that there's a lot of work that goes into what you do with your research. Stephanie, the series that you started with the Sherlock Holmes, it's not canon. It's, it's not traditional. You actually, as you said, brought him from one dimension to another. That hasn't been well received with, with everyone, has it? Correct. That's still the case. And why do you think that is? Because I treat Holmes as a real person, and I allow him the opportunity to grow and develop and change like real people do in the course of their lives. And let's face it, being yanked from one reality to another is change enough without also the added 100 to 150 year time span in between. He actually winds up in working with the chief scientist of the project that brought him there, who happens to be female and who happens to have a world-class intellect on the level of a Stephen Hawking or an Albert Einstein. And so she's every bit his equal intellectually. And as 
the stories develop in the series, you realize that she is actually his parallel in her world. And so they wind up in a relationship. And that absolutely, totally, utterly offended certain of the purists in, in the Holmes establishment. Ah, okay. The fact that he was in a relationship. And how do you respond to that, Stephanie? The, I did nothing that Doyle didn't actually indicate himself in his own writings. In one of Doyle's stories, he actually has Holmes saying, and I'm paraphrasing here a bit because I don't remember the exact quote, but you can look it up. I have never loved Watson, but if I had, and if the woman I loved had had such a thing done to her as this, I might act even as our lawless friend has done. Stop and think about that for a second. That is that is a very telling statement. What that says is, I've never loved, but I know I've got the capacity for it. More, I know that if it were ever to happen, I would be very, very emotionally involved. And if anybody ever did the lady wrong, they would have to reckon to me. And it wouldn't be pretty. So he knows he has the capacity for it. He just never encountered anybody he respected enough to feel that for. Arguably Irene Adler, but he couldn't really quite trust her. And I actually, later on in the series, like in book five or six, I think it was, I actually have him make a joke when they're discussing that she's basically his his equal, his parallel. She is him, essentially, in her world. He actually starts joking, you know, Watson always accused me of being an egotist, but I don't think even he expected me to ever marry myself. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> Partnership for the Arts Radio was recorded at Virtual Edge 360 in Port Charlotte, Florida. You can find this and other episodes of our talk show on our website, partnershipforthearts.group.org. Well, Stephanie, we've been covering your new Sherlock Holmes series, and obviously successful, and congratulations again on that award. There are more books, so how about we skip forward sure. to your new series, and why don't you tell us about that? The series is called Division One. It is my take on the urban legend of those guys in the black suits that run around at UFO sightings and alien abductions and stuff and make the evidence go away. And I know you've been incredibly busy with that series, so I think everybody listening will understand. Give us a timeline on these books that you've been doing. So the first book came out in January of this year. It's called Alpha and Omega. The second book just came out last month. It's called A Small, Medium, at Large. Book three comes out in July. It's called A Very Unconventional Christmas. <laughs> okay, Christmas in July. Book four comes out in October, and it's called Tour de Force. I'm actually writing the fifth book now, which will come out, come out next January. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone understand what I mean? Okay, so... Stephanie, obviously, no idle hands. So <laughs> now, let me ask you, Ben in Black has been around for a long, long time. I mean, there's been movies done, uh, variations of that. So why would you decide to do this? What's the reason for the series? Well, actually, this series was one of my first ideas for writing a series, years before I ever actually got oh, published. Oh, really? 
Yeah, and so that's that's where I first began to realize that I might actually have entire books in me. Because up until that point, I didn't think I had enough in me to write an entire novel. Short stories, sure. Novels, mm, I wasn't sure. I was ready to start putting something else out there. And I didn't know what. I had a friend who said, well, have you got anything that you could bring out and polish up and, and put out there? And I remembered these little stories. And they they weren't novels. They, they were not novel length. But there was enough there for the bare bones of a plot. I had to go digging back trying to find where I had put them because I had done them all on a desktop computer years ago. And to give you some idea, my husband and I were searching back through three-and-a-half-inch floppy disks to try <laughs> to find the manuscripts that I had. Of course, the computer that I had at that time, the USB port, what's that? You know, <laughs> right. There are devices that enable you to pull in these older media, storage media, mm -hmm. and port them into a USB port onto a modern computer. We actually recovered everything, and I took a look at them, and I just cringed. I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's so awful to read," you know, because I have I have matured so much as a writer since I wrote those, because we're talking about probably 20 years. Okay, so that's been a while. So how did you make them work? How'd you use them? So I'm going to use these as the core plot. Each one will be the core of a new novel. But then it's like, okay, I've got the skeleton, now I've got to flesh it out. You know, Alpha and Omega, the original manuscript, maybe had something like 30,000 words in it. It's now got 120,000. <laughs> <laughs> a little fleshing out there, right? Just a wee tad, just a wee tad. So, yeah, that's the kind of thing that I've been doing. I'm discovering that, you know what, I'm, I'm really getting a kick out of this series. Understand it is written with tongue planted so firmly, so deeply in cheek that it's sticking out the side, okay? <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of just plain, downright weird situations. But the characters themselves have fun at it. There's a lot of banter. And what have you heard about it? What kind of feedback? I'm already being told that I have created real people for the readers. So I'm, I'm really, really pleased about that. So, Stephanie, what's the story? What's the concept? The concept is galactic government. And so each part of the galaxy, each precinct, has its own sub-government. And the agency, the Division One agency, is headquartered on Earth. And it is the Division One Precinct's headquarters for the pan-galactic government. The concept is Earth isn't quite ready as a whole to realize that there's a galactic government. This is the, the administrative body for the galactic government because obviously we're starting to get out into space now. Okay, so lots of traditional elements there, twist on some of those. So Stephanie, what, what gets everything going? What happens? What wound up happening was, uh-oh, they're going to figure out that we have a colony on the satellite of Jupiter. 
And so this is what initiates the whole, we got to bring them into the galactic government now, whether they're ready for it or not. And so in the course of one little adventure, one of our main protagonists, Agent Echo, inadvertently runs across an astronomer doing some research observations in the middle of the West Texas back of beyond. I mean, literally runs across her, as in runs into her telescope, knocks it over, smashes the mirror, you know, pulls the laptop off of the folding table, you know, the whole bit. Okay, I get it. So in the literary sense, he literally runs into her. (laughs) (laughs) Partnership for the Arts Radio was recorded at Virtual Edge 360 in Port Charlotte, Florida. So what are you hearing uh, people comparing these, uh, this thing to? I mean, obviously, as you said, uh, a men in black. Comparisons have been made to various and sundry movies and TV shows, uh, such as the eponymous Men in Black films, The Matrix, The X-Files, even had comparisons made to some Outer Limits episodes, all of whom used this urban legend of these guys dressed in black with, with, its, with its details. Comparisons are made, but one of, the, one of the things that is part of the urban legend are devices to alter memory. Right, and that has been around long before the the Men in Black movies, too. And so they pull out this thing that looks like a cell phone and use it on her, and she's like, what'd you do that for? Don't you realize you just messed up my night vision? (laughs) She winds up getting drafted, basically. She doesn't have a choice. They can't make they can't make her memory of the event go away, so she has to come on board. And so the story is kind of told from her perspective as she is learning and becoming an agent of Division One. And that's not something that she exactly wanted to do, correct? Exactly. She was an astronaut. She had just finished her final tests and was about to be assigned her first mission when this happened. So there is a certain reluctance to go with them, but at the same time she realizes, well, you know what, if this is what is really going on, I can probably get out there further with them than I ever could with NASA. And so the story is Dr. Megan McAllister becomes Division One agent, and how the newly dubbed Agent Omega uh, works with Agent Echo and, and the, the adventures that they have. Yeah, and Stephanie, one of those strange adventures and, and something that is definitely out of the norm that you decided to take on was the part, I think it was in the second book, Medium at Large, with him in the graveyard. Yes, yeah, that's, that's the second book, A Small Medium at Large. The concept of that book is that Houdini really was doing the things he was doing and he was not using sleight of hand. Conan Doyle was right. There really was more to him than he was letting on. But this was because he wasn't human. I got to say, that one threw me. <laughs> How did the response come back with making that statement? You didn't get your husband thrown out of the magician club or anything, did you? <laughs> well, my husband is a professional magician. Yes, yes. quite talented. Uh, thank you. I checked with him first before I ever sat down and wrote the story. I learned from my Sherlock Holmes experiences, okay, let's make sure we're not going to offend the magic community on top of everything. 
he said, no, I, I don't think, since you're handling it like this, I don't think anybody's going to have a problem with it at all. They'll probably get a kick out of it. And in point of fact, he sent me somebody's blog, Magic Community, who was specifically a Houdini hobbyist and archivist. And they were like, here's, here's this new book out by Stephanie Osborne, and it's featuring Houdini, his historicity and everything and she's got it right but she's put an interesting twist on houdini you might want to check it out so uh, you know they they think it's cool <laughs> fantastic partnership for the arts radio was recorded at virtual edge 360 in port charlotte florida you can find this and other episodes of our talk show on our website partnership for the arts group.org 2016 was an extremely prolific year for me. Um, by my estimates, from about August uh, of 2016 until February of this year, I probably easily wrote half a million words. Wow. So there you go. I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually taking a bit of a break right now. Because, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. Um, I'm handicapped. I, you know. The, the the energy levels are, are not as high as they once were, and I cannot sustain that level of, of creativity and productivity indefinitely. i got to take a break now and then. Well, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much, Stephanie. I don't think there's a lot of people that could reach that mark and let alone sustain it. I think we can all appreciate the effort you put in to get there. Well, in, on a, in a good year... It's not uncommon for me to turn out five or six novels. Okay, Stephanie, that brings me to a, a question, and we had touched on the subject just briefly before. So if you don't mind, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. Go ahead. You have written that much material in that short of time. Where does that inspiration come from? How do you sustain writing something like that, fleshing that out in, in such detail? It, I refer to them as plot bunnies, and it's kind of along the lines of the monster bunny from the Monty Python. Uh, it, it bites you in the butt, and it won't let go until you sit down and write it. But as to where it comes from, every now and then I'll, I'll do something like I did with the Sherlock Holmes stuff, and I'll, I'll read a story and think, well, I could do something like that, but I'm going to go off in this direction. And sometimes I only get an inkling of it. And those are actually kind of hard because it's like, okay, I, I got to write this, I gotta, but I don't have it all in my head yet. The way I write has described as very cinematic. And there's a reason for that because basically what's happening when I write is I'm seeing and hearing it in my head. And even to some extent, sometimes smelling and tasting it depending on what's going on. I'm All I'm doing is taking that and writing down what I'm experiencing. And it's very much like transcribing a movie. Okay, so you get it from uh, reading materials. That How else? What's another way of keeping that going? Sometimes I will sit down with my husband or a friend or whoever happens to be available, and I will say, brainstorm with me. Okay, you know, what do you need? Well, I've got this scenario, and I can sort of almost see it, but i got to work out the details. And so here's the scenario, and I describe the whole thing to them. And then usually what will happen is at some point somebody will say something, and that'll that'll cause something in the back of my head to go click. And it may not even be what they said as much as it was the way they said it, because it may not have anything to do with their suggestion. But 
the suggestion triggers a, a domino effect, and I wind up getting to where I need to be. It's it's funny because the friends that I brainstorm with, a lot of times I'm brainstorming via email. And I know I've gotten it when all at once I start writing the dialogue. You know, and I start I start into the scene. And that's the point at which I know I've got it. Stephanie, describe the process of going through an idea and weighing it out and deciding if it's something you can use or not. You've got to put it away or go in a different direction. Usually I realize fairly early on, okay, i got to try something else, and I set the idea aside before I ever actually get to the writing stage. I'm a little bit of a combination of a plotter and a pantser. I don't know if you're familiar with those terms. Help me out. Okay, a pantser is somebody who writes by the seat of his pants <laughs> and doesn't know what's going to come out next. Um, a plotter is somebody who this outline of the entire story in half a dozen indented levels of detail, and the outline is almost as, as long as the book is. So where do you fit in? I'm somewhere in between. And, and I really started off mostly a pantser, but writing novels, you really can't do that. Why is that, Stephanie? Because you have to know where the clues need to go and how they need to be structured. So that's what started me off uh, actually uh, learning to plot. I really don't sit down and just start writing. I have to have the concept in my head first, and it has to work for me. And if in going through it, I'm thinking, that's a hole right there, the first thing I try to do is I try to plug the plot hole. If I can't plug it, then I know something's wrong with the plot. And so then I start backing up until I ascertain what the problem is. And, and this is all going on in my head. Nothing has made it to paper yet. So I, I back up and I start going, okay, this part is not going to work. So I'm going to have to do something else instead of this. And so that's the point at which it gets tossed. And I start brainstorming for something else to get from A to B. Because that's generally what I'm trying to do. Is I've, I, have, I know I have A, B, C, and D that need to be hit before I get to the conclusion. And so a lot of times... A lot of times I write out of sequence, and I will write A, B, C, and D, and then I will connect the dots. Your books tend to be quite layered, plots, subplots. How do you keep track of all of that? One novel and then moving into series. Over the course of a series, it can be difficult. Within a, any given book, I'm usually so inured in the book while I'm writing it that the characters... <laughs> I can be off running errands and I'm running dialogue in my head. Over the course of a series, that can be more difficult. So a lot of times what I do is I will create my own version of a series Bible, which generally, in the case of the Division One series, I keep a running notepad file. It started off being called Characters for Division One, but it has since, I'm pulling it up as I talk to you, it contains the principles and descriptions of them, contains a location as to where Division One headquarters is, what it looks like, my impression of it. Uh, it contains a list of specific aliens, alien species, other agents that I've used in various and sundry books, what their positions are, families of the agents, ongoing relations, between planets, specifics of the different Division One offices on Earth, equipment, 
transport methods, weaponry, what a Division One day looks like. <laughs> well, Stephanie, what about the characters? How much of a detailed record do you go into all those? For instance, I can tell you that Agent Echo is six foot three and a half inches. He weighs about 180 pounds. He has brown eyes and black brown hair. He carries about 10 to 11 percent body fat. Uh, his age at the beginning of the series is 34. His birth date is June 18th. He has degrees in diplomacy and linguistics. Uh, he is a certified massage therapist. Uh, <laughs> you know, so that's the level of detail. That's the level of detail. Okay. I think that's a great example, Stephanie. Thank you for sharing that of how much detail, work, process, and research you go into developing those characters and keeping track of all that through your novels and your series. When it comes to the reaction of your characters, what do you base that on? How do you decide how those characters are going to act? Where does that come from? You know, I try to give them realistic uh, reactions to things. And I use, I've been accused of, of this character or that character being what's called a Mary Sue. Uh, Mary Sue comes from fan fiction where it's the author is throwing his or herself into the plot as a character. But actually all I'm doing is basing, this were to happen to me, I'd react this way. And so I use that for the character's reaction, you know. So it's it's just really just a means of of helping to flesh them out. Stephanie, thank you for sharing those insights. I know your fans and others that haven't read your book yet <laughs> always appreciate a closer look into their favorite author's process of creating um, those novels and the series and how they bring those characters to life. Stephanie, I know you are busy, so we appreciate you taking the time and talking to us. <laughs> it's been a wonderful pleasure. I mean, we could go on like this, I think, for days, but I know you have books to write. <laughs> I know looking at those, you've been with Books A Million and uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Oh, yeah. You want to give us all some, uh, some information where we can find more of you? Sure. Uh, you can always go to my website. My website will have all of the purchase links for any given book. That website is www.stephanie-osborne.com. You can find everything I've got on Amazon for sure. About two-thirds of what I've written is available in print, and everything is available in ebook. So that's pretty much it. If you can't find it on your local store shelf, you can tell them to order it for you. I can tell you that. Okay, and you are on Facebook as well, of course. I am on Facebook, I am on Twitter, I am on Google+. There's some other stuff I'm on too that's not coming to mind at the moment. <laughs> and Facebook would be Stephanie Osborne. <laughs> I should know this, you share the stuff on our pages as well. It is Stephanie Osborne, right? Yes. Well, there you go. Everyone... You can get out there and follow up and get with Stephanie. And again, Stephanie, thank you for sharing all those posts on our, our Facebook pages, uh, Partnership for the Arts Group. Stephanie, I want to thank you again for taking the time and coming on the show. We will get together and do it again another book or so down the road. How about that? That sounds great. Well, again, just thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> well, there you have it. Another show so quickly come and gone. Lots of information that, and again, we could go on. <laughs> 
I could keep Stephanie cornered until she hang up on me. <laughs> but there goes another show, Partnership for the Arts, where we talk art. Been talking with Stephanie Osborne, author of many different styles of books and also a rocket scientist from Huntsville, Alabama. Stephanie, thank you for being on the show. Well, again, thank you for having me. Everyone, we'll talk to you soon. Partnership for the Arts Radio is recorded at Virtual Edge 360 in Port Charlotte, Florida. You can find this and other episodes of our talk show on our website, partnershipforthearts.org.